Today's passage or text comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. It begins a long section in Matthew of Jesus' parables, many of which will be preached from this pulpit in the coming weeks. And I think in many ways this parable sets up all the other parables to follow as it gives us some instruction or at least a map of how we're called to hear and understand those parables as they are preached. I think that this parable also gives us a map on how we're supposed to read and understand the Bible. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. That same day, the day that Jesus has had this conversation or, in fact, argument with the religious authorities in the synagogue, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So many great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, knowing that the water served to help the sound uh, uh, be heard by all those gathered there. While he was in the boat, the crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell on thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Then the disciples came and asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered, To you. It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. What is it they have nothing of? Ears to hear. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. This is the word of the Lord. Used to be the lights would dim in this sanctuary way back. There was a button, I think, that Albert would punch and the lights would go down in the sanctuary and the spotlight would come up on the pulpit as the preacher would stand high in this pulpit above you, clearing his throat and announcing that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And then the preacher would read a passage from the Bible with urgency and passion, and then, like I did today, end usually liturgically, 
in liturgical churches with the finish the word of the Lord and you respond, thanks be to God. But let me ask you, is it the word of the Lord? Are the words in the Bible the only words of the Lord as if God dictated this into the Bible and then no longer has spoken? And if these are the words of the, of the Lord in the Bible, let me ask you, are they the inerrant and literal transcription of God's word or something else? Are they literally meant to be true? Every word in it, every story in it, true like math is true, like two plus two equals four is true. Today, I would like to deal with how thoughtful people of faith can be more influenced by the book that we call the Bible and how we in our scientific post-enlightened age can come back to this book and take it more seriously. Seriously enough, at least, to learn how to read it in a way that becomes, once again, my book, our book, in spite of the scientific and psychological skepticism. Serious enough that we can move past needing to be literally true, as well as move past breaking down every single little part of the Bible in a sort of critical study method, in a sort of atomistic scientific method, as if the more we break it down, the more we will understand it. To read it in a way that we would read our parents or our children or our spouse. The reason this is on my mind is because these days the Bible is either having too much influence in our world and politics or too little. Too much influence in that some read it as a sort of literal abracadabra magic book, as if it came down from heaven dictated by God like we might dictate to Siri who writes it out with maybe a couple of small eras of miscommunication, but by and large getting the gist of what we are saying. Too much influence in that we think reading the Bible means reading it from beginning to end, maybe every year, and memorizing passages to stick in our pockets for the time that is needed to pull them out. Too much influence in that we believe the Bible is not meant to be studied critically nor meant to ask questions of God like, did God really create the world in seven 24-hour days? And was Jonah really swallowed by a whale? There are a thousand others but not enough influence in that we skeptics see it as an historical document meant to be spliced and diced, parsed and exegeted, executed, exegeted, picked apart and studied scientifically like we might study Reese's monkeys or how bacteria affects 
colons, if you don't mind my scatological language. Too little influence in that we see it as a quaint book full of stories, sagas, poetry, and wisdom, and such, but not really any more important than any other historical book like Shakespeare or maybe Anna Karenina. Too little influence. This is my opinion. That we have lost the most powerful witness and testament to who God is and who we are that has ever been written. And like most things in this world, coming to understand it does not come from the binary, either or, literal or not. If you disprove one section, you've disproved it all. It doesn't come from that binary place, take it or leave it. But a third way, I think, where we can turn to reclaim this text, this ancient scriptural witness to us as the authoritative word of God that it is. And I do not mean by that in any way, literally or inerrantly. Why now? Why now? Because we live in a culture where some Christian, and I don't mean to be name-calling, because we're all guilty on some level, but particularly now, some Christian evangelical fundamentalists claim that their Bible supports their president. I'm trying to be open one can support our president based on politics or on policy. One cannot base support our president in any way that I can understand based on what comes from the Bible. And that would be true not only for our present president, but presidents in the past. In terms of what the Bible tells us to do and who we are called to be as disciples of Christ our particular president and presidents in the past seem to be the poster child for what the opposite looks like. It's my take. You can support on policy and politics, but not biblically. And that's true for liberals as well as conservatives, which makes this not a political issue, but a biblical issue. Why now? Secondly, because a large percentage of people, especially young people, have left the church and discount the Bible as the word of God because they have seen mostly people claiming the Bible to support their own political agenda and reducing it into a level of politics that they know is limited and finite and that is being used by many people to support their particular perspective. So, they can see a scam. I want to say to them that while they have every reason to feel that way, for it is apparent that they also might be just as fundamentalist as the fundamentalists they are criticizing, because not everyone is that way. And the whole church is not that way. And I would like for them to see that there is, in fact, a third way. 
a new and other way to reclaim the authority and influence of Scripture that has been around as long as the Bible has been around for the truly, deeply faithful people who take the Bible seriously enough to ask questions that may not be answered. Why now? Because our society is becoming more polarized, breaking down the norms of civility, while breaking out in violence toward those who don't agree with us. Particularly anti-Christian worldviews. Now, as much as at any time we need to reclaim this power in Scripture to guide and instruct us to be for us a roadmap or a headlight that shows us the way forward. But it's the third way. This is the deep, rich soil that Jesus was talking about in the parable of the sower or the soils, or however you want to label it in Matthew's gospel the rich soil that produces incredible fruit. The sower goes out and sows the seed indiscriminately, which is symbolic, of course, is the indiscriminate power of God's grace and love thrown across the board to everyone and in every place, freely given. Some lands on some land some of the seed lands on good soil, some on not so good soil. Let the seed fall where it will, let it take root where it will, and let it produce. Wonderful. But it all doesn't produce. Allegorically at least, the path is the easy way people like to trod. The hard path beaten down by the feet of those who go always in the same way and the same direction and don't want to veer off course and want things to stay the same and don't want to ask hard questions and just want to be safe and just want to plod, plod, plod one foot in front of the other. I'm not sure about the creation story of God creating the world in six days and on the seventh he rested. Well, the Bible says God created the world in seven days. God said it. The Bible says it. That's good enough for me. Who are you to argue with it? But in the end, this concrete, beaten down, easy path doesn't produce any real fruit. It doesn't go deep enough. It stays on the surface. It's hard and impenetrable. I ran across a book in my study someone gave me, I don't know, a thousand years ago called Difficulties in the Bible, And it was written by a preacher from 1950 who tries to take all of the difficult passages in the Bible and make rational sense of them from a scientific worldview. Like, who did Cain marry? If Adam and Eve were the first two parents and the first two children were Cain and Abel, Cain went to Nod and found a wife or took a wife, depending how you interpret it. So, first problem here... Where did the wife come from? 
And the guy's explanation is, well, in those days there were tribal cultures and basically there were family system cultures that stayed closely together. So Cain and Abel had many more children, I mean, excuse me, Adam and Eve had many more children and Cain simply married his sister. Forget about incest, that wasn't that big a deal back then because they were just trying to survive and reproduce. Or how did really a whale swallow Jonah? Because every scientist knows that a whale's throat is too small to swallow a human being. And the guy makes the case that it's really not a whale, it's a mistranslation, it really means sea monster. So a sea monster swallowed Jonah, and he was in the belly of a sea monster for three days before he got spit out, apparently with, with no acidic reflux laid on to Jonah. I wish I could get some of that. Reminds me of the story of the little girl who was talking to her sister about how whales can swallow people, not her sister, her teacher. And the teacher says, I'm sorry, but whales can't swallow people. Their throat is too small. Every scientist understands that. The little girl says, well, Jonah was swallowed by a whale in the Bible. Slightly irritated, the teacher says, I'm sorry, but a whale cannot swallow a human. It's physically impossible. The little girl says, well, then I will ask Jonah when I get to heaven. And the teacher says, what if he goes to hell? And the little girl says, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) My first year here 12 years ago, Probably two months into me being here, way before I should have, I made the case that Jonah is a parable. And I got hammered. And it surprised me. It is a parable. Every thoughtful Jew knows that Jonah's story is a parable. Jesus told parables that doesn't make it any less true. Why do we struggle with this? As Jesus said, the reason I speak to you in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not hear, they just don't understand. And he's talking about that Jewish and or Christian fundamentalism that mainly needs to prove things scientifically for it to be true. Now about the weeds and the briars. Remember, two kinds of soil. This one's for us. When I went to seminary in 1984, I was 31 years old. I knew about as much of the Bible as Episcopalians, sorry, as I knew about metaphysics and cosmology or law, a nod to the Towsies, which is nothing. I didn't even know for sure what version of the Bible I should take. The King James, as someone had said, if it's good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for us. Or the Revised Standard Version, what my more fundamentalist brother called the Revised Standard Perversion. Or the Catholic Bible, I figured I would cover every base. You've heard of imposter syndrome? 
it's that sense that we're all frauds deep down and if someone really discovered who we are, they would uncover us and see what imposters we are. The anxiety that I was wrapped in as being an imposter was unbelievable. Not only did I not know much about the Bible, I wasn't even really sure about my faith. I was faithful and curious. I well remember those first classes, Bible study classes, when I finally figured out it was the Revised Standard Version we were supposed to be using. And the preacher, and excuse me, the teacher would say, let us turn to the fourth chapter in Ecclesiastes. And of course, I'm dramatically, breathlessly strumming through the pages of the Bible trying to find out where in the world Ecclesiastes is, while at the meantime, looking over to my side at my neighbor, that they might be able to turn to it, and then I can see at least if it's in the Old Testament or the New, and where in the book it can be found, I might get close much like we often do at a formal dinner party when we're not quite sure which spoon to use for our first course. We watch others. I was a child. And I learned the hard way. I learned that the Bible is full of saga and story and parable and history and poem and wisdom literature and every possible kind of literary genre there is in 66 books written over a period of 900 years, finally canonized by the church in the year 300 and some that Martin Luther felt like James and I'm not sure which other second Peter's not should be canonized at all that there were arguments about what the right words were that they were all over the map because there were so many different translations they had to pare down the ones they thought were most correct I learned how to parse verbs in Greek and Hebrew I learned how to exegete passages break them down step by step by step into an atomistic way of understanding the smaller the better. Looking back, the scholarship was vital for me to learn as a preacher, just as working with cadavers is vital for a surgeon. But sooner or later, you've got to work on real people. And I must say that scholarship produced some fruit, but not any real amazing fruit like in the third opportunity of the rich, dark soil. I got kind of lost in the weeds and the briars of scholastic, critical study, and I began to look at the book objectively rather than to let the book look at me. I tried to manage it. I mean, we're Presbyterians, It has taken me a long time to instead learn that one cannot manage it and neither can we read it without at the same time being in relationship with it. 
and not just the Bible, but also the community of faith out of which the Bible was written. The community first, the Bible second. The Bible is God's word to the community, interpreted by the community, and then written and revealed by the community to and for the community. If you're not in the community, you really can't take it. You don't understand it. What I have learned is that very little in the big scheme of things is found on the easy path or the hard soil or the literal translation or caught up in the briars and thorns of too much scholarship, but instead in the dark and moist and rich soil just waiting for the seed to drop so that God can nurture it and bring it to fruit. And this may just be about me, because I don't do well with memorizing verses, but to me, memorizing verses just won't do it. Don't not do it if you can do it, but that's not the way into the depths of biblical understanding. Again, only relationship, which is true in every single matter that counts. Only relationship only relationship, a relationship with it over a long time, a relationship with it in community where we share our understandings and where we rest on the tradition that has been passed down from one generation to the next, a relationship with it that we come to knowing it will teach us and nurture us and guide us and hold us and disciple us which means we cannot read the Bible alone, primarily. Sorry, Protestants. Sorry, independent individualists. Reminds me of the Yankee who first came south for a business deal in Atlanta Hotel, went down to breakfast, looked at the menu, motioned the waitress over and said, Ma'am, what's a grit? And she says, Honey, grits don't come by themselves. They only come in a group. Same for those of us in community. So the best analogy for me is that reading the Bible is like reading someone you love. At first, you take them at face value. You have your biases and your stereotypes and your prejudices about them. You've named them, you've categorized them, you've managed them. Well, they're an introvert and and they don't like Christmas carols, or they do, and they don't like to cook, or they don't eat meat, or they're a vegan, or what. You've got them all categorized. But as you sit with them and listen to them, you begin to see that they are way more complex and conflicted than they first appeared on the outside, and that you discover that there is layer after layer after layer of story about them that brings them to life. But even then, you don't know them. You know them when they share their deepest vulnerabilities, their questions and their struggles, their loves and their sadness, and when you share that back. And at that place of meeting, of suffering and joy and vulnerability, there is indeed a relationship made 
That's how we're called to read the Bible. There's nothing fundamentalist about it, but it is the most fundamental thing in the world. There is nothing academic about it, but it is the most academic thing in the world. It is intimate and risky and loving and relational and and sooner or later the influence will rub off on us and we will begin to think like those who wrote it and to act like those who lived it and to hope like those who love it. It's relational. It's why John starts his gospel in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, flesh, and dwelt among us. Incarnate, relational. It's the third way. Thanks be to God. Amen.